few quick uh, administrative things, and we'll spend time in God's Word. Our youth ministry continues tonight. This is our second official week, and this is the night that the curriculum really gets kicked off. So, so thankful to John and Brocklin and the others who have joined in to support them and help them. And we had a really good start last week, so I'm excited about uh, the fruit that God's going to bear through this. So that'll be again tonight from 6 to 7.30, and Berlin Presbyterian Church, which is one of our sister gospel coalition churches, graciously letting us use their facilities. So if you have any questions about that, you can see John or one of the other leaders. Also, I want to mention to you, we said this, we've said this to you a couple times via email, but Justin and Katie, along with some of our other families here helping them, are going to be having a fundraiser to help raise some funds for their adoption. And if you don't know, adoption's not cheap. And so this is a way for us to come alongside them in real tangible ways and bless them. So that's going to be this coming Saturday, and there have been some ways that we've communicated to you that you can come alongside them, even if you can't be there. I know some of you have schedule conflicts, and I just lost my screen, didn't I? And that's bad because of what you're probably going to see that you're not supposed to see. So let me disconnect this. There's nothing bad. I don't mean that. But private. So let me get on the right screen. My uh, computer's frozen for a minute, so I'm going to monkey with it while I talk to you. So anyway, um, if you can be there on Saturday, uh, you can RSVP and join in with, for the fundraiser. If you can't be there, there's ways to help provide food and some other things along the way. And so uh, I hope that you'll take advantage of that. And, uh, and then lastly, in two Sundays, not next, but the one after that, we're going to have our quarterly review for um, our last quarter's finances. So Nick, will be, Nick and Jason will be sending some more information out about that. If I can't get this fixed, then we're going to be in a little bit of a pickle. So let me uh, bear with me for just a second. This is 47 together. We continue uh, teaching through the book of Genesis now. We're nearing the end, so if you count, we have chapter 47, 48, 49, and 50, so that's four chapters left, and then I'll probably do a week or maybe two of review, probably just one though as we finish up. And looking forward, that'll put us, of course, toward the end of May, and that'll get us into the end of school, heading into sort of the uh, official summer months here in the state of Ohio, which really is not like end of June. Summer starts at the end of school and it goes up through beginning of school. So the summer months here are essentially end of May through early August. And during those months, the elders and I have talked about taking those months and teaching through the Psalms. And we're going to have kind of a particular design as we do that. I'm not just going to pick some random favorite Psalms. In particular, we want to, to take the Psalms this summer and show you how they give us a voice. They give us a voice for our sorrow and our lament. They give us a voice for rejoicing and exalting 
and a lot of other things. And so, one of the things that I think is sometimes misunderstood and underemphasized in the church is that we don't always help people understand that Christ came to save the whole person, not just mind, but soul, not just the way that we think, not just our intellect, but our spirit as well. Jesus is rescuing us in every dimension of our life, not just the way we think, but our emotions as well. So we're going to take this summer and demonstrate to you how the promise of the new covenant is wrapped up in making us new in every single way. And we're going to show you how in the Psalms, how we can praise God and sorrow with God and be angry with God and all those different things. So this summer we'll be spent looking at Christ in the Psalms and looking at how God is shaping us in our entirety, mind, body, soul, and spirit. So I'm looking forward to that. Of course, we'll continually draw our attention back to the gospel and the hope we have there. We're not just going to make this a moralistic approach to the Bible. We don't do that here, so we want to always be focused on the story of redemption as we've been doing through the book of Genesis. But I think that as we study the Psalms, we'll come out as more healthy worshipers in the end. So we look forward to that. But with We'll take the next four weeks or so, next five weeks or so, and finish the book of Genesis. We find ourselves now toward the very end. The story that we have been tracing thus far has brought Joseph to Egypt, where you are well aware he has been placed second in command. And in God's providence, he placed him there, not just to preserve these many people alive in Egypt, but more particularly to preserve the covenant family alive. Jacob's family. And this is not just a historical rendition of how God saved a particular family. This is our way of looking back and tracing how God kept His promises to keep redemption, not just for Jacob's family, but for all of the world. And it's important maybe for me just to pause there for a moment. That's that's the main point of what's going on here. We're going to draw some Important application for the way that we walk as God's people, the way we sojourn as God's people today. But, but that's the big thing that's going on here. That's the major note that Moses is striking as he writes these things down for his people uh, hundreds of years later after the events. What God is doing here in these verses is He's demonstrating that no matter what, He always keeps His promises. He promised Adam and Eve that He would not leave them without redemption, that one day redemption would come, and it would come through a person. And so He chose a man named Abraham, and He promised Abraham that not only through him would build a family and later a nation, but through that nation would bless the entire world. But there's no way that that could come to pass if Abraham's family was wiped off the face of the earth. Famine seemed to threaten to do that, but God in His great providence is always working out His plan. He's demonstrating to us in these verses, just as He did through Moses' pen so many thousands of years ago, that He never fails to keep His promises, and in particular, His promise of redemption. And I think what this text demonstrates to us, Genesis 47, is in subtle ways the smile of providence. Throughout this story, we've been seeing that God is providentially powerful and gracious. In particular, in this chapter, I think that there are two major things that Moses highlights. The first is that this life is often full of trouble. But the second thing, and 
against the stark relief of the trouble of life, we find that God always smiles upon His people. And if we're being honest, as we sojourn along the way, that's what life is like. Life is full of trouble, but for the people of God, there is the promise that He smiles upon us, not just in the darkness, but in the light as well. So let's read together Genesis chapter 47, and we'll tease these thoughts out as we go. This is the word of the Lord. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the, years, the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves, 
and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And God blessed to us the reading of his word. Through Jacob's own lips, we know that he saw his life as one that had been characterized by trouble. But as we find in this text, God smiles on his people, not just in spite of the trouble, but through it, shaping us and fashioning us for His glory. I'm going to give you an outline today that is sort of a run-on sentence that will help make sense of what we find here. Throughout our sojourn, we find that, first of all, life is really hard and often disappointing. So here you have Jacob. He's asked by Pharaoh, how old are you? And back in that day, They were not ashamed to talk about how old they were. There's something that happens right around like 29, right, where you stop telling each other how old you are. It says something, I think, about the narcissism and vanity of our culture. Back in that day, you were proud to say how old you were. It was a sign of blessing that, that God was shining His face upon you. That's why Pharaoh asked him. He wasn't just intrigued by this old man. He wanted to know how old he was. Pharaoh was already intrigued by what he had seen in Joseph's life. He believed that Joseph's God was powerful and good and had blessed his people. And now Joseph's father shows up, and all the more he's intrigued. It's interesting here in this text, and we'll talk about this in just a bit, that though Pharaoh is the emperor of this vast land, he demonstrates some measure of reverence for Joseph's father. But he asks him, how old are you? Jacob says, I'm 130, but that's kind of a sorrowful thing because I'm not as old as those that have come before me. And then notice what he says, verse 9, few and evil have been the days. Again, not a lot like us. I'll be 40 this year, which is, I guess, kind of a big one. And, And I can say now that I'm getting very close to 40 that my life doesn't seem like it's been characterized by a few days. It seems like I've been around a while. But that's not how Jacob saw this. He saw that his life had been marked not only by a few days comparatively, but that they had been, in his sight, evil. Well, what does that mean? What is Jacob trying to save here? I think he's saying here that his life had been marked by lots of disappointment and lots of sorrow. Let's look back at Jacob's life for just a minute. Most of you are relatively familiar with it. Jacob had been a pretty terrible deceiver, had lived with his family for decades before he ever set out on his own. 
He had deceived his brother on two particular occasions, his own father as well, because he was selfish. He was a conniver. He was a deceiver. And in doing so, he wrecked his family. Jacob missed out on the best years of life with his family because of his deceit. God took him back to his ancestral homeland where he found not just one wife, but two and sort of technically four. They had a bunch of kids together, sisters pitted against each other, children pitted against each other. His own father-in-law essentially despised him. And Jacob's life had been characterized by trouble. You find him coming out of his ancestral homeland to hand back toward Canaan, knowing full well that he had to deal with his brother that he had deceived on more than one occasion. If you remember the story, he comes back to his homeland giving his brother gifts, hoping that his brother would not strike him dead. Esau shows up with a huge band of people. Jacob is freaked out, but God in His great grace demonstrates mercy through Esau, and they sort of make up with each other. But the worst things were yet to come. He lost his favorite wife and childbirth to her second son. And eventually, his favorite son, Joseph, was despised by the other sons because Jacob had not learned his lessons, played the favorite. Eventually, the older sons made it seem as though Joseph, his favorite son, had been killed, and he lost him, and he grieved over him for years. So think about Jacob's life. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a schemer. Jacob made a mess of things. And God in His providence taught Jacob very difficult lessons. And even after it seems like he's learned those lessons, he still makes terrible decisions that don't make a lot of sense. And the very fabric of his family seems to be coming undone in the pages that we've already studied together. And particularly, the sting of losing his favorite son because of the culture that he'd created in his family, the kind of atmosphere he'd created in his family of selfishness and and conniving. His own sons became like that, and it cost him. He paid a very dear price, and he seemingly never really got over it. And in Jacob's eyes, his life had been characterized by trouble, and by his own words here, evil. Jacob was acutely aware of bad decisions that he had made and the consequences that had come to him through them. It's difficult as we live this life, we find over time that life is really hard and often disappointing. There are a few of you that are relatively happy-go-lucky, like everything just sort of seems to come to you and it bounces off of you and, and everything's fine, the sun is always shining while, while the Everybody else is experiencing rain and dreariness. You know, the sun's just shining on you and and everything's super great and and peachy and so forth. And and, and that's fine. There's a few of you that just have dispositions that are like that. There are probably a larger number who who basically kind of go in and out of things. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. But basically, you're relatively happy. And then there's others of us by the way that God made us, our dispositions, our personalities, as well as our experiences – Because we're nothing if we're not a harmonized, sort of inextricable bundle of nature and nurture, who we are and and what we've experienced. And there's a lot of you that that have had relatively dark lives. You, You dwell in the darkness a lot. 
Not because you want to be there, but that's just kind of how you feel. Well, everybody seems to have the sun shining on them. You think that the darkness always dwells in your corner of the land. So whether you are full of happiness or full of sadness or somewhere in the middle, you learn over time as you become a grown-up that life is often really hard. Life is hard financially. It's hard to live in the West like we do and not feel the strain of financial pressures. As we get older, we find that our bodies don't work as well. Joints stop working the way we want. Organs sometimes fail us. Disease sometimes sets in. I think perhaps, if we're being honest, the things that disappoint us the most are our relationships. That's, I think, in many ways what Jacob is saying here. He's been hurt again and again and again by relationships. I mean, think about what's going through Jacob's mind here in this text. He gets an audience with the greatest king of the land. That would have been the kind of thing that would have excited most people. But Jacob's dealing with a lot of psychological turmoil here. He's happy that he has found that Joseph is alive. But what does that mean? That means that his sons have been lying to him for decades. Jacob is troubled. Jacob is troubled seemingly primarily because of the fabric of his family. It was, it was messed up. It was, it, was, it was problematic. And if we're being honest, for a lot of us, that's where we've been hurt a lot as well. Losing spouses, children that no longer walk with Christ, losing close and dear friends, our marriages sometimes are not what we want them to be. Our friendships are often not as fulfilling as we would like them to be. And some of us just deal with the awareness that this world's not right. Like even if your finances are basically in a decent place and your health is okay and your relationships are, are really not that fragile, they seem to be okay, you just you look out at the world and you think, this, this place is really, really broken. I kind of feel like that. I've always felt like that, frankly. I remember being a child. I've always seemingly had the weight of the world on my shoulders. In some ways, I think that served me well because I think, I feel, I notice things. But on the other hand, sometimes I wish I wasn't that way. Sometimes I wish I was way more happy-go-lucky. I have days where I can't explain just how sad I feel. It's hard to watch the news. It's hard to read the internet. I mean, this world's a broken place. And even if everything in your life is relatively well put together and the, the bricks of your Legos of your life fit together well and everything's sort of structured perfectly, you can be really sad anyway. And sometimes you just can't explain it. It's nothing acute. It's nothing that you can put your finger on. You just often feel very, very down. Whether it's something you can put your finger on or whether it's just some sort of disposition that characterizes you, you learn over time that life is really hard and often disappointing. Sometimes I think about Adam and Eve themselves. What was it like for them? I mean, in one split second, they went from, from total bliss, fellowshipping with God, Everything was perfect. The only perfect marriage that ever was. We don't know if their children perhaps were for a time with them and things were okay, and then raising kids was hard. It was easy to work beforehand, and then work became hard. 
It was easy to fellowship with God, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to give Him His due, and then it became incredibly difficult. Moments before, Adam and Eve had a perfect life where everything was happy. When they chose to sin, everything plunged into darkness. Their eyes became dim, their hearts became hard, their minds became darkened, and everything began to seem like it was coming undone. And sometimes that's the way the world feels around us. It feels like the very fabric of our lives is coming unraveled. And you learn over time that life is really hard and often disappointing. I think if we're being honest, most of us would not want to go back. That doesn't mean we don't have some regrets. I have some regrets in life. There's some things that if I had to do it over again, I would do differently. But I would never want to live even one day over again because it's hard to go backward. Like, I, I'm getting some gray now in my, in my hair, and, and I feel like that that gray hair is hard-earned. It's hard-earned. You've got to walk through those days to learn. Most of us, if we're being honest, don't want to go back and live those hard days again. We're, we're looking forward to when things will be perfect again. And even in our best of days, when the bank accounts are relatively healthy and our bodies are healthy and our relationships are seemingly not fragile, there's a nagging awareness that this place is not quite right. In Psalm 90, the psalmist says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble They are soon gone, and we fly away. There are some of you, when you see those words, you're like, that's not me. Like, I'm super happy today. There are others of you who read those verses, and you think, oh, those are in the Bible? Like, it's okay to think that way? This is the way we often feel, if we're being honest. But we don't always feel like it's very spiritually mature or godly to talk this way, let alone think this way. But that's often how we feel, if we're being honest. Life is, life is hard. But God didn't want to leave things that way. God decided that He would make things new. But He wouldn't make things new simply by bringing triumph, by, by bringing glory, by bringing redemption into the brokenness. He would redeem through brokenness. And Jesus Himself is the perfect picture of this. When Jacob says here in Genesis 47 that his life has been characterized by evil, a later son would come from him, and he would bring redemption, but it would not come without his own brokenness. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Isaiah 53. We have learned recently, especially in our teaching about resurrection, when Jesus met with the disciples on the way to Emmaus, He demonstrated to them that the Scriptures screamed His name, told His story. Sometimes they do so in stark ways where there are clear prophecies given about Christ. At other times, there's more subtle dimensions hinting about Him. And I think here in Genesis 47, there's a hint that even the one who would come to bring redemption would himself have to go through trial to save those who themselves struggle. In Isaiah 53, we find a more direct allusion to Christ, but it connects for us 
the idea that redemption will come, but not without suffering, not without evil. Who has believed what they heard from us, Isaiah says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and he was stricken for the transgression of his people. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And verse 11, his soul will be characterized by anguish. In verse 12, his own soul would be poured out to death. Why? The end of the text says to us that he might bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. God would send redemption as He promised Adam and Eve He would do. But redemption would not come without suffering. That is the design of God. We see in Jacob's life that his life was characterized by struggle, but that would not be the end of the story because one would come willing to step into our struggle. And Jesus Himself, if He, the perfect Son of God and Son of Man, struggled, That means it's okay for us to as well, for through His struggle, He brings the hope of redemption, and through His struggle, He identifies with us. The writer of Hebrews says to us in chapter 2, therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means He bore God's wrath. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted, you and me. In chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so I say to you, loved ones, that our sojourn is hard, life is hard, and life is disappointing. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to often be overwhelmed by that. Jesus' life was often characterized by overwhelming struggle. But that's not the end of the story, and that's what Genesis 47 hints at. Life is really hard and often disappointing, but the Lord always keeps His promises to His people. We've seen this in the story already. It's an amazing picture of God's providence that Joseph got to Egypt in the first place, despite the fact that his own character had been maligned, not by his own doing, but by the deceit and forgetfulness of others. He was raised to second in command in the empire because God always does what He says He is going to do. That's what sovereignty means. God's sovereignty does not extend over a few things. God's sovereignty does not give us the hope that things might work out okay. It's not like a 50-50 chance. 
God's sovereignty means He will always accomplish exactly what He wants to accomplish. And somehow along the way, despite soul-rending disappointment and sorrow, Joseph believed that, and God proved His promises to him. And then God brought about a famine, because God's in control of the weather as well. And even through the weather, God accomplishes His purposes. In doing so, and placing His chosen one, Joseph, into this place in the empire, He allows the people of Israel, Jacob's family, to come to the land and to be preserved alive, keeping His promise that the main storyline of Genesis, that God will, through a family, build a nation, and through a nation, bless the world, that He's doing that by saving these 70-odd people. Sometimes it's overwhelming if you consider the size of our city. Our city's around 2 million people. The size of our state and our country of 300 million-odd people and a world now of 7 billion-odd people. It can make you feel pretty small. When you look at the place of the earth and the galaxy and the galaxy and the universe, and we are infinitesimal. And this family of 70 might seem like a big number for a family reunion, but it was insignificant. But God was doing something significant seemingly through the insignificant. Our world has had lots of families. Our world has had lots of empires that have come and gone. Our world has had certainly lots of weather patterns that have come and gone. But through all of this, God is doing something miraculous. And now He brings Jacob, this one who often looked back on his life with bitter sorrow before the throne of the most powerful man of the land, And seemingly, he has some measure of preeminence because he is the one doing the blessing here. His son will be the most powerful, functional man in the land. Pharaoh has given all of his power to Joseph. Joseph exerts that power over the land. I won't say much about this because this is not the focus, I think, that Moses is really drawing from the text, but because he says several things here about how Joseph interacted with the people, it bears at least uh, an important reflection. What's Joseph doing here? Well, he's administrating. He's using his God-given gifts of administration to save lots of lives. It's easy to look at this text in sort of a haphazard, sloppy way and say that Joseph perhaps was being unkind to these people, particularly in the fact that eventually they became servants to Pharaoh. But there are some subtle things in this text which would indicate to us that Joseph is not being an unmerciful taskmaster, but in fact is showing mercy. It was not uncommon in lands of that day for the people of land to be in total subservience to their king, to their emperor. In this text, though they become eventually the servants of Pharaoh, they still have access to 80% of the produce of their land that will eventually come when the land is healed. In fact, they are the ones who suggest to Joseph that they become the servants of Pharaoh. So in subtle ways, rather than looking at Joseph as an unmerciful taskmaster, probably truly what's going on here is that Joseph is making the best of a really bad situation. And whether we see Jacob, the old man full of sorrow, coming and showing blessing to Pharaoh, or Joseph, the 
administrator of the land, now being given power to save not just his own family of 70 people, but many, many hundreds of thousands of people in the land of Egypt. God is through His people already beginning to bless the world. It's a demonstration to us that God indeed does keep His promises, that He will not only bless Jacob's family, but through them bless the world. God promised Abraham that that's exactly what He would do. He would bless Abraham and through Abraham bless the world. That's what He's doing in this text. Jacob comes and blesses Pharaoh. Joseph comes and saves hundreds of thousands of people alive. And it's a demonstration that God always does keep His promises. He positioned Joseph in the right place, Jacob eventually in the right place. And I want to say to you something that we've actually talked about through this text so far, and that is that the delays between the initial giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise is often separated by dozens and dozens of years. And the reason I bring that up again is I want to say to you, dear brothers and sisters, that often the wait is long. Sometimes when God makes a promise, He does not fulfill it right away. You've seen that with the bearing of children. You've seen that with the working out of your relationships, your finances, your jobs, and a host of other ways. Some of you have dwelt in long seasons of darkness and bitterness, but I say to you, hang on. Jacob had to hang on. Here's a 130-year-old man who's going to live another 17 years. But in retrospect, he saw those years as being characterized by bitter sorrow. But now he gets to watch his son, these final precious years of his life, not only save his own family, but hundreds of thousands of people. Joseph, who had been rejected by his own family and lived in isolation and even slavery himself for a long, long time, gets to see some beautiful, happy, successful, fruitful, peaceful, loving years here toward the end. And I say to you today that if you find yourself in the throes of a season of bitter sorrow and disappointment, do not give up. For though God sometimes delays, and though sometimes you see only the shadows, He is smiling behind them, and He will bless you and keep you. And how do you know this? Because God always keeps His promises. He always has. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, there's a reason why these verses are so well known. Scriptures tell us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts, to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight our paths. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 139. David, who himself had great moments of glory, the pinnacle of success and joy, David's life was often marked by horrible disappointment because of his own sin, because of the fabric of his own family coming undone. And here's how David reflected on his own life, the tension between happiness and sorrow. O Lord, verse 1, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search up my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? 
or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and some of you may be there now, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The Lord is with us, and even in the midst of the darkness, He is smiling upon us and is doing good. How do we know thus most acutely? We've already said that the one who was acquainted with grief, the one who himself bore our sorrows, the one who himself understands that we are but dust, has come and entered into our story. The one who eternally was the Son of God became the Son of Man. And through His obedience and keeping all of God's law and dying the death that His Father and He had agreed upon, He redeems us, those of us who trust Him. One of the interesting things at the end of Psalm 47 and really the highlight of the text is that Jacob makes Joseph promise that he will not bury him here. We were driving down Cheshire Road the other day and saw the beautiful cemetery where Luke has been laid to rest and we think about him every time we drive by and we love him and we love you, Justin and Katie. And um, I don't know, maybe God will leave my wife and I here the rest of our lives and it would be really um, sort of special to be laid to rest right where our hearts are. Our hearts are here because God has placed us here with you. Uh, I, I don't know, but that was a big deal back in this day. It was a big deal to know where you were going to be laid to rest. It was a super big deal to Jacob. Jacob wanted to be laid to rest, not in this foreign land, but back where he had come from, back in the homeland of Canaan, back in the land of promise, which itself was part of the promise that God had given to Abraham. The place itself became a symbol, a down payment that God would always keep His promises. And Jacob wanted to know that though they were experiencing drought, that though they had to leave the homeland, that they would be able to go back. And so he makes Joseph promise, hey, put your hand under my thigh, which is not something we do today. If you saw somebody doing that today, that would be a little creepy. But that's how they did it back then. Put your hand on your, your loved one's thigh and you made a promise. It was like sealing the deal. It was making a contract. And he says to his son, carry me back, bury me in the land of promise. And to flash forward a little bit, that will happen to Joseph as well. You may or may not know this, but one of the things that the Israelites carried with them when they left Egypt, having been released from Pharaoh's oppression, are the bones of Joseph himself. Joseph himself, in keeping with his father's own example, wanted to be buried in the land of promise. But Canaan itself is not the most perfect place in the world. Canaan itself is but temporary. And the one who came to give us life promised that he would take us to our final resting place. Let's trace this together. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to John 14. place, a theology of place, the Scripture's place, an emphasis upon that. 
The land of Canaan was a place, a place of tangible blessing for Israel. When they were faithful, God kept them there. Often when they were not, He would remove them from a time. When they repented, He would bring them back. But even Canaan itself, the land of promise, was not to be the final resting place of God's people. Jesus says to His disciples in John 14, verse 1, "'Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also.'" Eden was the place where God dwelled with His people. Because of sin that had been broken, Canaan was an echo of that. But now Jesus, the one who was acquainted with grief, promises that joy, rest, glory, and perfect peaceful fellowship will come again. Before He leaves, He tells His disciples, I will come and be with you. That's our place. Our place is to be with God. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews 11. I'm just hinting at this. This might bear some fruit in a later study for you to study a theology of place, but we're just going to hint at it today. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer is extolling the virtues of those who believed God as God was the object of their faith. In verse 9, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, speaking of Abraham here, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And turn with me, if you don't mind, to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, John the Apostle records, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The final place will be when God comes down to earth and brings His capital city to be on the refashioned earth, and there our place will be with Him. Why does Jacob make Joseph promise that he'll take him back to his place? Because it's a temporary promise pointing forward to the greater promise when we will be with God. And how is that possible? Jesus makes it possible. The one who suffered the evil of this world in our place will bring glory down because of His suffering. And the memorial of that city is that it has come to us and we are reconciled to God because the sacrificial Lamb has given Himself for us. And so I say to you, loved ones, that throughout our surgeon we will find that life is really hard 
and often disappointing. But take heart. The Lord always keeps his promises to his people, and that is because of his Son. And if he has not spared his Son, will he not graciously with him give us all things? How do we respond to this? Here's two suggestions. First of all, very simply, it is okay to struggle. You might look at Jacob and say, why are you so down? In fact, in our current evangelical structure, a person like Jacob might have been rebuked. Often we think that it's not okay to struggle. It's not okay to be sorrowful. It's not okay to cry. It's not okay to complain. It's not okay to be down. Jacob was being honest. His life had been characterized by turmoil and trouble. We should not manufacture this. You shouldn't try to revel in the darkness if that's not what characterizes you, but but it's okay to struggle. It's okay to come on a Sunday and have a hard time singing. It's okay to be here and have a hard time talking. But you should be here, and you should be with each other. And when you see your brothers and sisters struggling, do not run away from them. Go to them. And it brings me to the second point of application. We need faithful storytellers in our lives. What do I mean by that? Tell the story. Tell the story of Genesis 47. How a man whose life had been marked by sorrow believed. He believed that his body would be carried back to his land as a symbol that his own people would go back to the land. And that's why Moses wrote those things down. Moses was a storyteller. And he wrote the events of Genesis 47 down to prove one major point, that the audience to whom Genesis was originally written had become themselves slaves in the land, not treated nicely by an administrator like Joseph, but treated harshly by a later taskmaster named Pharaoh. But Moses wanted the people of Israel to know that just like their great father had gone back to the land, that they themselves would go back to the land because God always keeps His promises. Moses was a master storyteller, and through the telling of the stories of his people, he tells his people that God will always keep His promises and they can trust Him. So we have to be storytellers. That means you've got to know the story, not just the surface stuff, but the intricate stuff, the dimensions of the story. And what's the primary dimension of the story of the Bible? That despite the brokenness of this world around us, despite our own brokenness and the consequences that flow to us and our sadness and our sorrow and the darkness which seems to permeate our lives, that light will break in. That Jesus has broken in. That one day He will come back and make all things new. So I say to you, it's okay to struggle. But you and I, we need storytellers. We need to be storytellers. So know the story, the story of good news, in which we are promised that God always is loyal to His people, and because of Jesus, we can trust Him. So welcome storytellers into your life. Be yourselves storytellers. And I say to you as we close today that the darkness is being overcome The smile of God will one day be fully known. Let's hang on. Let's trust Him. Let's pray.